I don't think that people realize how hard it is on your romantic relationship. You know, the person that you created this tiny human being with. We think it's going to be hard on ourselves. We think that the child is going to be difficult. And what really happens is your relationship is tested more than you've ever imagined it to be tested. And we don't talk about this. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I am joined by Dr. Jenny Rossier. Dr. Rosser is an Associate Professor of Interpersonal Communication at James Madison University, the Director of the Relationships Love Happiness Projects, and the author of three popular press books, The Who Does More War, Make Love Not Scrapbooks, and Finding the Love Guru in You. As an expert in romantic and parent-child relationships, Rossier focuses much of her research, speaking, and writing on the communication skills needed to maintain these bonds, including empathy, respect, sex talk, and attachment. She lives in Virginia with her loving husband and their four young children. In today's episode, Dr. Rosser talks through how children impact on relationship satisfaction. So if you have a partner and a family or are thinking of starting a family, this episode is really, really important in regards to maintaining connection during what are some of the most arguably stressful periods in a relationship. You'll not only hear about the common parental arguments such as the who does more war that you're never really going to win, but you'll also learn how you can approach your partner with empathy and how you can use this period in your relationship to actually deeper your connection. But really, this episode is just building on the amazing work that Dr. Rosser has shared in her most recent book, The Who Does More War. And we have a very special opportunity for you to win a copy of The Who Does More War. So head on over to social media at Dr. Caitlin or at Relationships Love Happiness Project where you can find out a bit more about this competition. But without further ado, here is Dr. Rossier now. Jenny, welcome to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. It is a delight to have you here today. So thank you for taking the time out of your very busy life. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, and I guess we first connected over Instagram because I was really drawn to all of your posts and the information and the wisdom you were sharing around relationships and parenthood. And recently you've released a new book called The Who Does More War, which is something I think a lot of us in relationship and in family would really relate to. Would you mind just sharing a bit about who you are and how you've come to be here sharing this wisdom with us today? Sure. My name is Jenny Rozier. I am an associate professor of communication studies at James Madison University in Virginia. I am married to my best friend. I have four young children. 
I am also the director of the Relationships Love Happiness Project, where we host some local relationship building events. Um, but the main thing that we do is we uh, have an Instagram following and we give advice and make videos and just have a lot of fun online helping people improve their relationships. I recently wrote a book, like you said, called The Who Does More War. And um, it is a it's a book that is dedicated to my husband uh, who has been going through this crazy parenting journey with me now for 11 years. Our twins just turned 11 this past, uh, this month in May. And so it's just all about the trials and tribulations that most couples face when they introduce a new person into their life. That's, I think, a really rich journey. I guess highlights to me as well that, you know, you mentioned that you work as an associate professor at a university as well, that you have this really rich background. So the information you're sharing is really underpinned by research evidence. Sure. I like to combine anything that I write or anything that I speak about. Um, I like to combine real romantic relationship research with real life experiences. And I think that that really helps when I am teaching or when I'm speaking at an event, it helps the audience to really connect with the information. Sometimes academic research can be really stuffy and difficult to understand. And so I like to break it down in a creative and easy to understand way through some stories from my own life um, to help people understand it so that they can maybe improve something in their own lives. It's very relatable. Um, I've been reading your Who Does More War book, and I guess what I found is it's really normalized some of the experiences, but gives really interesting and useful tips and tricks for managing the very real stressors that come with parenthood. And we know that parenthood does impact on our satisfaction in various domains in our lives. Would you mind just starting with that background to share with the listeners? <laughs> Sure. So research has shown that about 67% of couples have a significant decline in their marital satisfaction or their relationship satisfaction after they introduce a child into their life. And so, you know, I think that people have children or have want to have children thinking that, oh, we're going to start a family. I've wanted a family my whole life. It's going to be rainbows and gumdrops. Like, yeah, sure, it's going to be hard, but, you know, I'll get through it because I've talked to some people and I just need to, like, do some more chores and I need to, you know, there's going to be a longer to-do list and babies cry and I'll get through it. It'll be fine. I don't think that people realize how hard it is on your romantic relationship. You know, the person that you created this tiny human being with, we think it's going to be hard on ourselves. We think that the child is going to be difficult. And what it really, what really happens is your relationship is tested more than you've ever imagined it to be tested. And we don't talk about this. So, you know, you don't go to the, your gynecologist or your OBGYN and they talk to you about, oh yeah, so when you have a baby, guess what? You know, you and your partner are going to fight about things you never fought about before. 
Like nobody tells you that at your baby shower. You're not listening to stories from the women who have children about how, you know, they almost divorced their husband in that first year, or they had a fight about something they never thought they would fight about, uh, you know, in the first few weeks that a baby came home. People don't like to talk about that stuff. And I think that what that does is it gives us these expectations that are unrealistic. And so the book starts off by talking about what expectations are and how they kind of, where they come from, how we cope with them rather poorly, in my opinion, and how they make it difficult for us to deal with huge changes in our lives, but also just day-to-day things that happen. And so I hope that we can get some more realistic expectations about what is likely going to happen uh, when you have a baby so that you know, maybe you can start trying to figure out how you would address it before you get there. That's a great point. And I guess, I guess with where these expectations do come from, would you mind just kind of giving a brief overview of that? Sure. So expectations come from all different places. We are born without any expectations. <laughs> a baby is born with no expectations in their brain. A lot of researchers would call them internal working models. And as we experience life, we start to develop these mental frameworks or these internal working models that tell us what to expect. And our expectations can come from our parents. They can come from family and friends, the, the real people who are around us. But they can also come from the media, which is not really a great place for them to come from. They can come from our culture, which is why you know, if you have someone who is from a culture that's very different from your own, there might be some like miscommunication, some misunderstanding, your expectations are really different from culture to culture. And so our culture, the media, our parents, our family and friends, they all impact our expectations. And so if your whole life, you grow up watching people you know, relish the joys of new parenthood, happy whenever you see new parents with babies and, you know, everything seems perfect and hunky-dory and Disney would, you know, make you think that as well. And uh, then you have a baby yourself and you start to feel not just stressed, but you start to maybe even go as far as regretting what situation you're in because you cannot believe that it is so different from what you thought it was going to be. When this happens when we're in romantic relationships, we tend to end the romantic relationship. We can't end having a child. When you have a child, you have a child. And so it's very difficult to cope with expectations that are not met when you are a new parent. When, uh, like I said, when we have, uh, when we don't, our relationships don't meet our expectations, we tend to say, oh, this is not what I expected. I'm, I'm going to end this. Uh, college is not what I expected. I'm going to drop out. Uh, this job isn't what I expected. I'm going to quit. Um, but when a child isn't what you expected, it makes it really difficult to backpedal. You can't backpedal. You can't just opt out. And so developing realistic expectations is vital to 
getting through this very stressful time. And it's stressful for everybody, no matter what anybody tells you, it's stressful for everyone. Even someone who seems to be the best mom and the happiest person and the best relationship with her husband or her partner, they are stressed out too. They're just hiding it really well. I think that's important to know. Super important to know. And I think like we're in a time where media, you know, particularly Instagram has all of these photos. I laugh in your book because you particularly talked through craft time and the difference from what we see in media versus the reality of it. I mean, laughing out loud, like it's, it's very different, I guess, Um, perceptions of what things, and I say in air quotes, should be like. (laughs) Sure. I, I understand this stuff. I research it. I teach about it. I write about it. I talk about it all the time. And I still find myself looking on Instagram and saying, wow, why can't I play a board game with my children? Why, why, why can't I play a board game like my friends are playing? My friends are sitting down playing a board game with their children. If we try to play a board game at our house, it turns into, as I said in the book with craft time, it turns into a nuclear war. Like everyone is fighting, everyone is arguing, everyone's name calling. My children are very competitive. A child knocks the board and all hell breaks loose. Everyone loses their mind. We're eating snacks and foods flying everywhere and that's stressing me out. And so I can't even enjoy the game. We try, my, this is a true, my husband and I try to play board games with our children about once every six months to see if they've outgrown it. And they never do. They never outgrow it. It's outrageous. And then we say, I guess we're not playing board games again for a long time. It's just really crazy. Hilarious. It's true though. That reality is a really nice check for those who might not have had the opportunity to have like these real conversations because as you said, some people can hide it really well and hide what's going on underneath and the challenges, the tensions that might be at home. I guess before we get into some of the the arguments or the difficulties that parents might in particular have, you mention in your book the framework of an attachment foundation and you use that language very deliberately. So I wonder if you mm-hmm. could just talk us through that quickly. Yes. So attachment is something that I'm very interested in. I, I teach an entire course on it at uh, James Madison University and I write about it extensively. Um, Attachment is the idea that our early interactions with our parents when we are infants create internal working models in our brains about how positive or negative we view ourselves, how positive or negative we view other people, and how positive or negatively we view relationships. In the first three-ish years of life, an attachment foundation is developed. And so, and it's again, based on the interactions that we have with our parents. So if a parent is loving and responsive and calm, we might develop expectations that we are good, other people are good, relationships are worth, worth the effort. And we develop these expectations at the age of three. 
Wow. Oppositely, if we have a parent who is hot and cold, sometimes they're loving, sometimes they're really mean. Sometimes it seems like they love you. Sometimes it seems like they don't. Um, sometimes they're very quick to respond. Sometimes they're not. We might develop a, a different kind of expectations in our brain. So we might think that we are not that great because if we were great, then mom and dad or mom or dad would uh, respond to us quicker or be kinder to us or act like they loved us more. Um, or we might view other people negatively. And unfortunately, we carry these attachment foundations with us throughout life and they impact the way that we interact with other friends, family members, and later romantic partners throughout our lives. The reason that I call it an attachment foundation and not an attachment style like many researchers would is because it is malleable. It is not set in stone. Uh, what happens to you in your first three years of life does not um, destine you to be secure or insecure, um, but it is a solid foundation. And I like to use the word foundation because it's just like a house. You know, when you build a house, you build the foundation. And if the foundation is really strong and really solid, then anything you put on top, you know, you put some, um, you, you put brick on top or you put wood on top or, you know, you put some kind of plastic on top to build your house. Um, if the foundation is strong, you're going to still be better off than the person who had a not so great foundation and chose the best materials to put on top. So the foundation's always there. You have to make sure that you work really hard in those first few years of life to create a solid attachment foundation. But again, it is malleable, it can change, you can earn security, or unfortunately you can lose security. Um, based on some negative life experiences. Okay. And so with that, just to define what secure and insecure means for people who might not have heard those terms before, what would be, I guess, starting with secure look like? So secure individuals tend to have positive views of themselves, positive views of others, positive views of relationships. They tend to have low anxiety and low avoidance. So they're comfortable with intimacy um, but they are also comfortable with independence. Uh, secure attachment is the most desirable of the attachment styles or foundations to have. Uh, there's also insecure attachment, and that tends to be broken down into two or three categories. So one category is called um, anxious preoccupied, these individuals have a low opinion of themselves and a high opinion of others. So I'm not so great, but other people are pretty great. Um, they also have a high opinion of relationships. They think they're worthwhile. And the reason they think they're worthwhile is because they want to get in one so that someone could help them because they're not that, they don't feel that great about who they are as a person. And they, they believe that a lot of their happiness and safety and security will be found in another person. Another um, attachment, insecure attachment, would be called dismissive. These people have a high opinion of themselves and a low opinion of others. 
And so they think that they're really great and other people are not so great. So these tend to be your loners, people who want to be like single for life. I'm fine being a bachelor or a bachelorette my whole life. I don't need someone else to make me happy. And then the last person is the last kind of insecure attachment is called fearful avoidant. These people tend to have a low opinion of themselves and a low opinion of others. Uh, they want to be in relationships, but have a really hard time trusting other people. And so they many times will avoid them or when they're actually in the relationship, uh, they might like self-sabotage to end the relationship. Um, they always feel that the other shoe is going to drop. So if things are going badly or things are going well in their relationship, they think, well, it, it has to end at some point. And so they're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. They're always waiting for the bad thing to happen. And so, again, how we speak to our children becomes their inner voice. Uh, how we speak to our children helps them develop these mental frameworks in their brains that impact how they interact with other people. And those interactions they have with other people can mold their attachment as well. But again, that foundation is really important. Okay. So what we do now does matter. Our relationships yes. also matter. I imagine these attachment styles influence how we respond in relationships. And that's something that people might want to be bearing in mind, particularly as we start to look at what are these, what are these common parenting arguments that come up? You know, your oh, book is man. named the yes. who does war more, <laughs> who does more <laughs> war. <laughs> Yes, so that's one of them. The who does more war is the chore war. And this is the war about who is doing more work. We have who does more wars in our dating relationships, but it's in the, it manifests into, I feel like I'm putting more into our relationship than you are. Sometimes it's about tangible things like chores, like dishes and laundry and the grass cutting and Sometimes that is what it's about. But most people, I think that once, once they get married before they have children or when they're dating before they've had children, they tend to work out this conflict to a certain extent. And I think that what happens is people don't realize how long the to-do list lengthens when they have a child. And so they feel like they've gotten they've gotten through this argument, you know, they feel like, oh, well, I've done this. I, we figured out he does the dishes. I do the laundry. We've got this down. And they kind of go into having a child a little blindly and they don't think about the, the laundry list. I mean, I cannot explain to you how long the list lengthens uh, and you, you just will never know until you have a child yourself. And I will also say that the to-do list gets longer with every child. So you have a second child or a third child or a fourth child. And not only do you forget each time you forget how much extra work a newborn is and that that list gets longer, but when you're adding more children, your just general to-do list is just longer. And so I think that talking those things out becomes really important. And avoiding having the who does more war fight is vital. 
And the, you can say things like, hey, honey, I think that I've, I've been feeling lately, like maybe I've been doing a little more of the, I don't know, the, the um, diaper changing. I really could use some help. But if you try to have a tit-for-tat war with your partner, nobody wins. Nobody wins because both people believe they are doing more than the other person. It's all about your perspective. It's all about your expectation. Both people feel that they are doing a significant amount of stuff. Now, you might know that you are doing more than your partner. You might know this, and it's a fact. You've written it all out. But uh, there's no way that your partner thinks that they're not pulling their weight. Um, and so having this fight is a... It is a futile fight. It is, it is, um, it is a, it's an argument that everybody has and it's an argument that nobody wins. And so you have to figure out how to have these conversations outside of a conflict interaction and having them before the baby arrives is easier than having them when you are stressed out and sleep deprived and holding said baby while baby is crying. <laughs> yeah, a yeah, uh, kind of recipe for disaster, so to speak. But I, mm -hmm. I guess what maybe listeners can pick up is the way you frame that too. Like I noticed how you said, you know, I'm feeling this when you approach your partner. Like that's almost a sneaky tip in how we could yes, manage yes. some of these conversations. I mean, would you mind just talking us through maybe one or other, one or two more um I guess, common, common arguments so that we get a bit more of a flavor. Sure, sure. So we have the who does more war, which is the chore war or, and the to-do list war. And then we also have the there's no time war. The there's no time war is all about the dramatic shift that your life takes on when you have a baby. And this is really based on expectations. So I can't tell you how many of my friends have had, and my female friends, let's be clear. I'm, I'm talking to my female friends about this. Um, my female friends who have had children and an argument that they have with their partner in the first six months or so centers around, he still wants to go out with his friends. She thinks they should stay home with the baby all the time. And there's so many issues going on here. I think that there's two different expectations. The, the woman believes that, oh, well, now that we've started a family, we should have family time all the time. And I want to be, as the woman, I want to be with my baby 24 seven. He should want to be with my baby 24, our baby 24 seven as well. And the fact that he doesn't is really hurtful to me, right? It's really hurts my feelings. It makes me feel like maybe we made a mistake. Maybe we shouldn't have had a family. And so we tend to spiral out of control when this happens. I'm not saying that women don't want to have alone time too. They do. But there's this pesky thing called hormones in the beginning that really d makes you not want to be around anyone else besides your baby. And some of us, this is more severe than others. Um, 
you know, I wanted to be around my babies 24 seven for months and I didn't want to be around anyone else. I didn't want to go anywhere by myself. I wanted to be with them all the time. But I have friends who, you know, after two or three weeks, they're like, okay, I need to go have five hours with my girlfriend. So we're all different. But when there's a, it's a dramatic shift from having alone time, having freedom, not having to think about anyone else to suddenly every decision you make about leaving the house has to go through your partner. You have to think about your baby. You have to pack a whole ensemble for your baby to go with you anywhere, you know, suitcases full of things to bring just to go to the grocery store. Um, and so I think that it, I mean, you, it's just something that people don't think about. There's jokes about it. Like, oh yeah, with your first baby, you bring a suitcase with you everywhere. With your second baby, you, you know, throw a passy in your pocket and walk away. There's jokes about it, but I don't think people realize how difficult it is really for a, for two partners to come to an agreement about how much alone time they're going to have for themselves after the baby arrives, how much alone time they are going to have with each other, because that gets cut in half too. You know, we, like I just said, my, our twins just turned 11. And I remember I used to write a family blog just for our family and friends. And I wrote a blog post when I was very pregnant. Um, I want to say a week before they arrived. And I said, the whole, the whole blog post was about how bored we were. And I just said, oh, we're so bored. Life is so boring. We can only go out to eat so many times. I can't, you know, we, we went bowling last week and it was just so boring. I can't wait for the babies to come. I can't wait for the babies to be born. I would give anything to be that bored again. <laughs> I can't, just to be a little bit bored, I would give anything. And I think that people just don't talk about the hard stuff and talking about how your time is going to change is important and talking to each other what kinds of things do you think you need to feel sane this is what i think i need to feel sane i mean think about the most stressful time in your life and what helped you cope with that you should start thinking about those things before baby comes and then, you know, for me, it's getting a pedicure, getting a manicure. I, if I'm really stressed out, my husband has always says, go get a pedicure. And I say, go for an hour and a half by myself. And he says, yes, <laughs> go get a, go get a pedicure. Um, my husband enjoys going for a run or going for a drive. He's a car guy. He likes to go for a drive. And he'll, he just said to me, I want to say two or three, the days are all mish, mish, mushed together now, but I want to say two or three days ago. We were having a pretty stressful day. And he's like, I have to go drive. And I said, okay, <laughs> go drive. And he just went driving. We all need our alone self-care time. We all need our friend time. We all need our couple time. You can't pour from an empty cup. And so we need to talk about what we think that's going to look like, what we would like it to look like, what is feasible for it to look like after children arrive. I really like the idea that we can have kind of this awareness of the things that we need, almost like the little like, mm -hmm. 
life medicines that we need to kind of fill us up. Um, And I guess in all of this, you've kind of already started to allude to some of the tips to manage these I guess, parenting arguments, as well as multiple others that you've described very beautifully in the Who Does More War. But I guess in managing it, you've kind of highlighted adjusting our expectations is going to be really vital around what we thought things might look like to what the reality of this this new situation is. And enhancing empathy. So that's like understanding what's going on for the other person. And fighting a fair fight is another one. I don't know if you would feel okay to talk us through maybe a bit of enhancing empathy and then how do we fight a fair fight? Oh, this is, it's tough. So (laughs) in, in my book, I give, there's an entire chapter dedicated to questions, conversations, starting questions that you can have with your partner to get you to start talking about some of these things. And I have to tell you that in uh, a few of my girlfriends have already read the book and they, you know, have been saying that texting me and calling me and they're like, I wish I had had these conversations before we had kids, but we had them over dinner the other night. And wow, I had no idea what my husband's answer was going to be. And I think that it's so important to ask these questions. So there's some questions that you can have that can help to begin to adjust uh, your expectations. But also, I have a chapter where I ask you to, I guide you through creating like a parenting, like a set of parenting expectations and parenting vows that you both hope to have or hope to do. And like you promise to, some vows you promise to abide by. And so by the end of the book, you, you will have a shared parenting vision, which is so important for adjusting your expectations. But like you said, it, what it really comes down to is this idea of having empathy for one another. And I think that this comes with time. It's very difficult for people to empathize with everybody all the time, right? But in order to minimize conflict, I think that you need to put yourself in your partner's shoes. We hear that phrase thrown around a lot, put yourself in my shoes, or I've put myself in your shoes before, it's not that bad. But it's not about just putting yourself in in your partner's shoes. It's about putting yourself, taking your shoes off, standing where your partner is standing, in their shoes, with their baggage, with their past experiences, with their personality, with their expectations about what life is going to be like, and really thinking about how whatever it is that they're experiencing is impacting them, not how you would react if you experienced that. You are a completely different person. And so having some empathy is really vital to understanding your partner's maybe anger or sadness or disconnection. Um, One of the things I like to repeat in my head over and over again whenever I'm in a conflict with my partner or my children or anyone is that this person is likely giving me a hard time because they're having a hard time. And I think that if you, in the moment, 
can say that to yourself and believe it, then you can start to have more empathy, right? So my partner is really upset with me right now. He might be say, using words that he shouldn't use or speaking in a tone that's disrespectful, but you know, he is giving me a hard time because he's having a hard time. This in no way, shape or form means that you should put up with um, verbal abuse or, you know, insane amounts of disrespect, but understanding that we all get stressed out and we all have different stress thresholds where some people, you know, um, it takes a lot to stress them out and other people, it doesn't take very much at all. Um, my husband being one of these people, he sometimes will, you know, I'll be in one part of the house and he'll be in another part and he goes, holy sh and I think that he's, you know, broken his finger or his arm's been sawed off by a, you know, a nail file. And I run in and he's like, I can't find my other shoe. different stress thresholds you know some people freak out over seemingly small things but to him it's a big thing to him it's it means that someone has moved his shoe where from where he put it because he's a you know organized man and he likes his shoes in a certain place and it irritates him that someone would move his shoe and that he's now going to be late to whatever he's going to write and so you have to really think about the other person's perspective by really thinking about their past experiences, their baggage, their personality, everything, and how they're reacting to that situation. So empathy is really key. Now, when it comes to fighting a fair fight, this can be very difficult, but I think there's a few things that you can do in order to fight a fair fight. The first one is to pick your battles. You can't fight about everything. Once you start fighting about everything, you're really not fighting about anything. So you need to pick your battles. Uh, the second one is to de-escalate as much as possible. So if things start to get escalated, maybe your tone gets harsh or your volume increases or you start to say things that you feel like you might regret or your partner does, then you need to de-escalate. You need to stop the conversation, say, hey, let's take a 10 minute break. Or my personal favorite that I say to my husband is, hey, I love you and you love me. Uh, why are we talking to each other this way? Come on. Um, and usually, you know, he'll say that or I'll say that and the other person will go, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then we calm down a little bit. But again, the last thing that you need to do is to have empathy and to understand that Parenthood is difficult for everybody. It's not easy for anyone. It's difficult for everyone. And certain stages are easier for certain people. Newborn stage is easy for me. It was hard for my husband. I love newborns. If the newborn stage, could, if the first four months could last a year and a half, I would sign up. I love it. <laughs> and, but most people I know really struggle through the newborn stage. And so, I think that having empathy and understanding maybe why someone might struggle through the newborn stage or through the toddler stage or through the 11 year olds talking back stage that I'm currently in. Um, you need to figure out, you know, think, have some empathy and think about why your partner is having so much trouble with this. And instead of fighting with your partner, try to empathize with them and try to, 
talk with them about things that you guys can do to improve the situation as opposed to, you know, I hate how you're always yelling at the kids. It's ridiculous. You have to calm down. That doesn't help anyone. You're yelling at your partner. You're doing exactly what you said was bothering you about your partner's behavior. So you really just need to pick your battles, have some empathy, and de-escalate. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think then in terms of listeners taking this away, it sounds like one of the really important things is if they're in the position where maybe they're thinking about kids or they're pregnant or in sort of a stage of a relationship where this is really on the table, actually having a look through, you know, the who does more war now and even starting those conversations, using the conversation starters to get a feel of what's going on for their partner, what their expectations are, where things are in terms of of understanding, I guess, partner's history as well. Like you said, empathy is really taking off one's own shoes and stepping into their partners. So I imagine mm -hmm. even getting a flavor of a partner's attachment style is going to be useful here and really sure. getting that vantage point of what's going on for them. And even if, you know, you're already at the point where you have kids, using these skills to really understand what is going on for this other person that you have made this tiny human with. Sure. And then starting to move from there to skills around de-escalating when these wars do come up. Sure. I think if I had had this book before we had kids, I would have felt so much more prepared than I actually was. Um, but like I said earlier, my girlfriends have read the book already and they are all in the thick of having multiple children and they believe that it has helped their relationships already. So it is not just for people who are considering having a child or who are pregnant already. Um, while I think it's great if you can get it that early, um, these conversations can help everyone, especially, you know, sometimes we don't, sometimes we have the conversations years ago and then we don't remember that we need to check in. You know, we need to check in and see, say, hey, so how is the to-do list is it being split up in a way that we're both happy, right? If it's not, this is a great way to have the conversation without having the argument about it. So saying, hey, I got this book and let's go through these conversations. This could be fun. Let's do it together. And taking a few conversations or a few questions here, a few questions there uh, can be really helpful. That's a really nice reminder that just because things have been tracking along, it doesn't mean that we can't give them some attention and perhaps enhance what's going on for us, sure. our household, and this relationship. So where, where can people find you? All right. So you can find me on the Relationships Love Happiness Project Instagram, which is at Relationships Love Happiness, or on Facebook. Um, Facebook slash Facebook.com slash relationships love happiness or you can find us on the web at www.relationshipsloveappiness.com and my book will be released on July 14th 2020 if you head over to Instagram though you can find a link where you can pre-order your copy now Fabulous. Um, thank you so much, Jenny, for your time today. It was really, really generous you. of you and really real and interesting. So thank you thank for you. giving us real life examples. 
And yeah, listeners, I will put links to all of these connections in the show notes as well. So you're welcome to pick them up there and make sure that you connect in and that you do pre-order the Who Does More War. Although I believe this episode is going to be going live just as the book releases. So definitely order it, get your hands on it right away and give yourself then your relationship, the benefit of this wisdom. hope that you found today's episode with Dr. Ross here as interesting, as formative, and as entertaining as I did. Please check out her work at relationshipsloveshappiness.com. And of course, the show notes at drcaitlin.com will have this connection as well as where you can follow her on social media. As I mentioned in the intro, we are doing a giveaway of her new book, the Who Does More War. So head on over to at Dr. Caitlin on Instagram or at Relationships Love Happiness where you'll be able to find some links to participate in this giveaway. It would also mean the world to me if you would take two minutes to leave a review of this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have not left a review on iTunes before, I have to admit it's not totally intuitive. So you can head to at drcaitlin.com for a quick how-to video, or if you just flick me an email, hello at drcaitlin.com, and I can help you out. I so much appreciate your support. Until next week, I'm wishing you well. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.